Today's passage is from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. And he, referring to Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. If you haven't watched last week's sermon, you want to hit pause on this to do so before going any further because this is part two of a three-week mini-series looking at the three interwoven parables revolving around what it means to be lost and found and rejoiced over. And I'll be building on the foundation I laid out last week. This week, we're diving into the most well-known of all Jesus' parables, commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. Though for reasons I'll get into next week, I far prefer the title of Tim Keller's book on this parable, The The Prodigal God. I'll be dividing it up and looking at the younger son this week and the older son next week. Now, there are many reasons why this parable, out of the dozens recorded in the four Gospels, has so potently and consistently resonated with people over the centuries. Rembrandt's famous painting, Return of the Prodigal, is easily the most well-known piece of art, but Googling the phrase prodigal son artwork will return hundreds of images and examples of works of art inspired by it. It taps into universal human experience of feeling lost, as well as our universal human longings to be both found and rejoiced over as the father rejoices over his younger son. As with any other well-known passage of scripture, our familiarity can also get in the way of this parable fully penetrating our hearts. And art, be it music or sculpture, painting or poetry, helps us to see what is familiar with fresh eyes, to rediscover a beauty that we've taken for granted. 
That, in addition to just the sheer quantity of art produced over the centuries, is why I included a lot more bonus material than usual in the newsletter and video description below. Whether you hit pause now or go back to it later, I highly encourage you to both dwell in this parable directly, as well as let the art wash over you to more fully imbibe the love that inspired it. So, let's jump in. I've talked a lot about how hard it is for us in a Western guilt culture to see or appreciate the shame and honor dynamics that are part of the DNA of Middle Eastern cultures like ancient Israel. And this parable is no exception. To start with, it is impossible to overstate just how existentially painful and scandalous it would have been for a younger son to ask for his inheritance like this one did. To do so before his father died is the equivalent of saying to him, the only worth of value you hold for me is the financial gain I'll receive when you die. In fact, it isn't, it isn't even worth waiting for you to die to ask for my inheritance. So how about we just pretend that you're already dead so I can get on with my life and the money I'm owed? In a world of clapbacks and sick burns, we can be more than a little desensitized even to language that offensive and shameless, at least until you remember who he's talking to. This is his father who loves him enough to apparently swallow the hurt, grant such an outrageously hurtful and offensive request, and then actually let him leave. The astronomic cost of that love is reinforced by the word that we translate in the passage's property, which also means life. And using that particular word, Jesus implies that the father was giving his very life to his son. That the experience of his son leaving with his inheritance, which would have been about a third of all of his father's wealth, wasn't all that different from the death his son was so impatient for. While writing the sermon, I tried to very personally put myself in the father's shoe trying to imagine how I'd react to a grown-up ransom saying this to me was, well, it was, it was distressing to say the least. As any parent knows, I'd do anything for my little man, including give up life or limb. I pictured myself desperately pleading with him to stay so that we could work things out and like any good helicopter parent, maybe even find some way to plant a bug on him so that I could track him down later. That is, assuming I couldn't figure out some way to straight up lock him away in a spare room. And yes, I know that it's technically kidnapping if he's an adult in this scenario, but if you're a parent, you can empathize. Either way, I definitely could not picture myself cashing in on one third of all my property and possessions to give him that, uh, to give him what would amount to permission or approval for what he was doing. And that part of the parable, frankly, it's, it's not trying to pass along parenting advice, and Jesus' audience would not have heard it as such either, but to describe that the father's love absorbed the cost of his son's abandonment even before he left, never mind before he returned. What makes all this even harder is that we don't actually know why the younger son wanted to leave so badly. Like, what did we miss in his story that culminated with him so casually shaming and discarding his father like this? Surely he didn't just wake up one day and decide to do this on a whim. Because the father represents God in this parable, we can assume that it is not because the father didn't love him well enough or treated him as anything less than his own beloved son. Most of 
the more traditional sermons you've likely heard on this parable, read it through this default lens of our Western guilt-oriented culture that assumes the problem is behavioral, i.e., he just didn't want to follow the rules. He wanted to live his own life. The problem with this interpretation is that A, that's actually saying more than the parable does, and B, that misses the, the relational schism described in Luke 15, verses one through two, which sets up these three parables to begin with, where Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. That word, grumbled, is also the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and specifically Exodus 16.2, to describe Israel's entitled toddler-like tantrum against Moses and Aaron, the prophets chosen by God, by the God who just rescued them from Egyptian slavery. Luke here is not describing a subtle murmuring or even a passive-aggressive gossip, but a loud, vocal, and incessant complaining rooted in a self-righteous entitlement. It's a heart infected with pride, the overflow of which expresses contempt for those and really any that you see as falling short of your subjective standard. Sounds pretty miserable, doesn't it? I wonder how loved or accepted that younger son would feel by his older brother, even before leaving. Keep in mind, his older brother was also the heir, meaning that the trajectory of his father's household would be oriented around his future leadership. The servants would have followed his lead and deferred to his preferences over the younger brothers every single time. His attitude would, for good or for ill, dictate the atmosphere and culture of the entire household, the whole operation. And based on how the older brother responds to his return at the end of the parable, as well as the grumbling that Luke says prompted Jesus to teach this collection of three parables, it's pretty likely that family life was a pretty joyless experience for the younger brother. Now, all that said, we should hold those assumptions very loosely because Jesus' parables neither exclude nor omit anything essential to the main point. In other words, it's actually very telling that Jesus doesn't give an explicit reason for why the younger son wanted to leave. Jesus is if anything, actively avoiding the anticipated question of and likely very heated argument over whether he was right or justified in leaving. It is utter, ir utterly irrelevant, and by omitting the reason for it, he's sidestepping further di division or argument between these two groups in order to get them to stop blaming each other and instead take a harder look at their own hearts and focusing our attention on the point that Jesus is, tr is trying to make that the younger son's leaving was A, costly beyond belief, and B, it did not deliver on what it promised. Jesus summarizes that latter point very quickly. In just a few verses, we learn that the younger son squandered his inheritance to such a degree that he was barely treading water when a famine hit the place he'd chosen for his new home. He no longer had the resources to fund his hedonism, nor the means to even survive on his own. Because Jewish law declared swine to be ceremonially unclean, meaning that contact with them required an arduous purification ritual in order to rejoin God's people in temple worship, his caring for a Gentile business owner's pigs would have represented absolute rock bottom. It meant that he hadn't just abandoned his family, he also essentially or functionally abandoned his faith a good Jew of that time likely would have chosen to starve to death rather than to eat 
unclean offal from the unclean trough of unclean animals. Here's my point. The younger son's lostness was so deep and so complete, so desperate and so shameful that any way out of this mess would have been unimaginable to anyone listening. You see, there's rock bottom and then there's hog bottom. And the latter is exponentially worse, despite being a rather brilliant name for a hole in the wall barbecue joint. You can send royalties to me. Um, (laughs) But just pause for a second and put yourself in the shoes of the tax collectors and sinners listening to this parable in the moment and try to imagine what it would have been like to not know the end of the story in that moment, right? You'd be, you'd be on the absolute edge of your seat listening to this strange rabbi who, unlike all the other religious leaders in the room right there with you, didn't actively shun or look down on you. You'd just heard Jesus tell two parables about being lost and found and rejoiced over, hoping against hope, that Jesus was actually saying what you thought he was saying, that you are the sheep and the coin that God longs to bring home, but also wrestling with that not getting your hopes up pessimism that comes from receiving time and time and time and time again the disdain and disappointment of the very religious leaders who were supposed to have been God's shepherds and teachers. On the one hand, Jesus is actually giving you some very bad news that, you know, actually, you're even more spiritually worse off than you think. That grumbling you hear in the room behind you, that is deserved. That it actually is the destination of the road that you are headed on. That is the certain destiny of those who so callously treat the Father's love as cheap or spit in the face of his costly sacrificial generosity. You too, all of us, would have hoped the Hail Mary of begging your Father for the impersonal arrangement of working as a hired servant would be amenable to him. That you might somehow atone for and pay off the debt of your squandered inheritance over the next few decades. In their shoes, None of us would have been able to fathom any other solution with better odds than a snowball's chance in hell. Until. Until, that is, we see the father's reaction when this younger son returns. The only way the father could have seen his son, quote, while he was still a long way off, is if he were actively looking and hoping for his son to return without seizing. And once he does return, he does what no respectable Middle Eastern landowner would have been caught dead doing in private, never mind through the middle of the whole town to see. He shamefully exposes his legs by hiking up his robes so he can run unencumbered and veritably flies off the front porch to ensure that he doesn't go a single moment longer. Not one breath breathe or one heart beat without hugging his boy. Verse 20 says that the father embraced him and kissed him. But more accurately and literally, it says that he began embracing him and began 
kissing him. This father is enveloping his kid with the kind of hug where you don't feel like you can ever wrap your arms around the one you love enough to feel fully satisfied. This, this father is smothering his son with enough kisses to make up for lost time, which apparently, according to the description here, amounted to what felt like an eternity to him. This wasn't done in private, but in full display, smack in the center of a community who would have known every juicy bit of gossip surrounding his son's shameful abandonment and betrayal. His dad could not care less. This is how wide and deep your father's love is for you. Before you even crest the horizon, before you beg to work or achieve your way back into your family, before you have a chance to offer anything to atone for the bad that you've done or the good you've omitted, before you have the chance to articulate anything other than your desperate need for an unimaginable and humanly speaking impossible act of mercy, your Father in heaven doesn't just tell you He shows you that you still do not understand the heights or depths of his love. He covers your shame with the honor of his robe, the mantle of a king. As he slides that uniquely potent symbol of authority that is a signet ring bearing the family crest, it begins to dawn on you that despite losing all rights or worthiness thereof, he never actually stopped being daddy to you. Not only is your debt cleared and your slate clean, your father seems strangely intent and insistent in restoring your inheritance to you by putting on your feet a luxury only landowners, present or future, could afford. Shoes. All of this, all of this, including your father's publicly declared open invitation to rejoice over you with a welcome home party of epic proportions, would have been every bit as scandalous as hitting hog bottom was shameful. In fact, Jesus is almost certainly telling this story this way to imply that the father is intentionally embarrassing himself in order to distract onlookers and draw the attention of shame-filled, judgmental gazes away from his beloved son. He matched his boy's shame by denigrating himself by willfully re-bestowing his honorable name upon the one who spit in its face. He gave grumblers something to talk about by discarding his dignity and bringing himself down to his son's level in order to lift him up in love. I am at a loss for words to describe what that moment that picture of otherworldly love must have felt like to the shunned and alienated and isolated persona non grata that were the tax collectors and sinners in that room, right? Because it's not like Jesus said, hey, your sin and shame isn't actually all that bad. You still deserve love. He didn't gloss over their shame. He names it. He described their shunned alienation and social isolation with both vivid detail and more importantly, 
He confirmed that their estrangement was actually from their God as well as from their community. So your best case scenario, the most you could hope for outcome was the slim chance of making decades-long restitution for your even worse-than-you-thought sins. And instead? Instead, you're thrown a party. You were celebrated. You were the guest of honor. You were rejoiced over. And no one was more loud or proud to rejoice over you than the Father whose love you took for granted. I know I'm dwelling on this, but you're just going to have to get over it. (laughs) Because I don't want you to get over your belovedness. This is what it's about. This is the gospel. This is everything. And this is where we're going to end things. <laughs> but not before we stick the landing, so to speak. So if you've, if you've zoned out because you're watching or listening to this while doing the dishes or going for a walk or checking your email or whatever, I want you to stop what you're doing for a minute and just, just go to a place where you can sit or stand still and close your eyes. And if you think you're above this or enlightened enough to not need it, one, you're wrong. And two, your sermon is coming next week. So just trust me on this one and stop moving for a hot minute, okay? Close your eyes. And take a deep breath. Good. Now, I want you to think of your biggest sin that moment where you hit hog bottom and were at your absolute worst. Bring to mind your deepest shame, whether that's something someone already knows about or nobody knows about. Maybe it's just something that you've thought about and haven't actually done and you're ashamed of that. Got it? Good. Now I want you to picture what would happen if literally everyone you knew, from family and friends to coworkers and neighbors, knew about that secret shame inside and out. Every single detail. Now I want you to be honest with yourself. What would they say to you? What would they do? What what expression or what look would they have on their face? What meaning would that be communicating to you? Hold that. And now I want you to picture the same Jesus who told this parable to tax collectors and sinners I want you to picture him sitting or standing right in front of you. He sees you. He's looking at you right now as you hold in your mind what you are 
most ashamed of. What look does he have on his face? Is he frustrated? Does it look like he loves you or is is he just kind of patiently putting up with you because he's God and he is infinite in his patience? Is he grumbling in agreement with the reactions that you most fear from among your loved ones who suddenly know every detail about this? Go ahead and open your eyes now. If the face of Jesus does not mirror the happy tears and shameless adoration that the younger son saw upon the face of his father as he ran full tilt past the watching eyes of everyone he'd ever known in order to tackle him in the bear hug of all bear hugs, then you too lack the imagination of that servant who can't fathom the height nor the depth of your father's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. The younger son couldn't believe it either. And do you realize that that is what is the good news? That he couldn't fathom it? Because it wasn't his, because his imagination was so small or too small so much as it was because the father's infinite love is simply too big for his finite children to ever fully comprehend. It is for that reason that it doesn't preclude or reduce his dad's affection for him any more than it does our Abba's for us. In fact, Jesus goes through even greater lengths to show us his love than the father of this parable did. Jesus' arms were spread wide, not to embrace us, but to replace us with himself on a cross of our own making. We are clothed not in a mantle made of textiles sewn by human hands, but a righteousness sewn by the blood that Jesus shed in love. The son of God, was abandoned to death itself so that we would know that not even death itself could separate us from the love of our Father in heaven. And whether that is too familiar or to fully feel or seemingly too good to be true, it's okay. God never tires of rejoicing over you with the shameless, a shamelessness matched only by the loud at the top of your lungs because nobody's watching kind of singing one might do in the shower, except he does so with the entire world watching. He rejoices over you. You simply cannot exhaust the infinite riches of your inheritance as his beloved son or daughter. So, Christian, Acts 2.39 says that This promise, that promise, I just got done trying to use every word of my vocabulary to describe adequately and still fail in doing so. This promise is for you and your your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I therefore invite you, wherever you are, to hold out your hands, to receive God's affection for you, expressed in Zephaniah 3, 18 through 20, as it is beautifully paraphrased in the message. The accumulated sorrows of your exile will dissipate. I, your God, will get rid of them for you. You've carried those burdens long enough. 
At the same time, I'll get rid of all those who've made your life miserable. I'll heal the maimed. I'll bring home the homeless. And the very countries where they were hated, they will be venerated. On judgment day, I'll bring you back home, a great family gathering. You'll be known and honored all over the world. You'll see it with your own eyes. All those painful partings turned into reunions. God's promise. Amen.